All right. If we go ahead and find our seats and uh, we can get started. Um, thanks for joining us this morning. It's so great. I mean, it's, it, I was sitting there worshiping with you thinking, I am so content to be in the presence of the Lord and in your presence worshiping together. What a wonderful experience. Um, I'm excited about our series on marriage. We're in part two this week. We're going to be talking about marriage. But before we do that, I'd like to do something else. Brad Riley, you knew he was coming, can come on up here. And Jim Vanisdale, you can come up here too, sir. Thank you. And um, as they're coming up, these two men I want to recognize before us and before God who have tirelessly served um, many years, but specifically concentrated this last year. So this is Brad's last Sunday as our interim worship director. Can we just give him a round of applause? See? Wow, look at that. Uh, Brad, if you don't know um, the intricacies of worship leading, directing here at Grace. There's a lot of pieces. There's over 60 people that are actually part of our worship team. He has to organize all that, pick songs, follow the Spirit, listen to me nagging in his ear about what to do and what not to do. It's a challenge, um, and he's done it so well. He, he's done way above and beyond it. This is great. I get to just brag about you while you sit here. This is, this is great. Uh, it worked way more than he was supposed to work, um, and now he's going to take a well-deserved break. So I think he's going to be in the mountains almost the entire month of July. So that's fantastic. July 1 is his first day of freedom. So um, thank you, sir. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Again. So now I get to talk about you. So Jim Vanister was on the search committee that found me. So he and I became fast friends. Um, likes horses, I like horses, knows way more about horses than I do, so immediately, of course, I'm going to be his friend. Um, found me, worked with me, gave, has given me a ton of grace. He's been our elder uh, moderator this past year, and he is coming off the board. His term is over here. July 1st is also his first day of freedom, and he served the board uh, very, very tirelessly. He's worked a lot, so can we give him a round of applause for that? Now, if you don't know what an elder moderator does, it basically keeps me under control. And if you know what, who I am and what I like, I'm out of control a lot. So he's had a tough job. He's wrangled me well. He's guided the elder board. He's spent many, many hours in prayer. Um, he loves you guys so, so much. And I'm just, I'm thrilled to be able to have worked with you. And now we get to just be friends and not have to work together. So I don't have to be under his, hey, come on, slow down. And I don't have to, you know, have all these conversations with him. Him. Now we can just talk about horses. There we go. Yes. So we give him another round of applause. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. I love you. Thanks, Brad. Leadership is um, a spotlight, and, and it is never as easy as you think. And so we have a couple of new guys coming onto the board, and they have taken this very seriously, sober-minded, um, let the Lord lead them, and we are preparing for a new worship um, director here soon, um, and that, that process is almost over, so I'll have more information about that after um, we have kind of some final conversations. But it's an exciting time at Grace. There's a lot going on, and, and, it, and it means a lot that there is so many of you that work like Jim and Brad do, behind the scenes, working hard, 
and rarely get thanked. So I'd like to say officially, if you are a volunteer of this church, my heart goes out to you because it is a lot of work to take this church the direction it's going, and I so, so appreciate the work that we all put in, all the volunteers put into it. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, let me just begin uh, this morning with prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity uh, to work alongside uh, people that are so hungry for you. They desire you, uh, and, and that's what this church is, a desire to be close to you, to be unified with you. Uh, Lord, I ask that as we look at your word this morning, that you would speak uh, through me to this church. Uh, Lord, I have so many ideas. I have too many ideas in my head. I ask that you would get me out of the way long enough for you to speak to your people, your bride, who you dearly, dearly love. Lord, thank you for your love for us, and, and thank you for this time. In your name, amen. So we uh, started the series off last week on marriage, and, and we talked a lot about the Genesis 2 passage and, and whether or not God is using marriage to, uh, a, a, the relationship between a man and a woman to compare to the relationship between Christ and the church, or is he using the relationship between Christ and the church to compare it to a man and a woman? We don't know. And the answer to that question is yes, both. He does both. And so as we talk about marriage, we can't talk about marriage unless we're talking about Christ and the church and how a man and a woman have a relationship called marriage. So it's an interesting process. So no matter, we talked about this last week, no matter your marital status, this is so important for us to understand, um, your experience with marriage, whether it's been a good one, a bad one, or you hope to have one, the series is for you because marriage is a reflection of Christ and his church, and that's us. So we need to understand marriage. And we talked about the Hebrews passage that says everyone should honor marriage. It doesn't say only the people that are in marriage honor marriage. No, everyone honors marriage because, as Paul says, it's a great mystery. So we're to meditate on the mystery of marriage because it'll give us insight on how we, the church, should think and respond to Christ. This is why this is such a big topic and honestly, maybe one of the reasons why it's such a hot topic in today's culture. There's a lot of debate around it. But I'm excited to talk about it. So I want to dig in to our passage this morning. We're going to look at Colossians 3 and um, uh, 12 through 13. Okay, Colossians 3, uh, uh, Paul to the letter, uh, the letter of uh, Colossians to the church in Colossae. Uh, therefore, God, uh, Paul says in verse 12, is God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Wow, what an interesting passage to talk about Paul writing to the church, giving people advice. Now, before we can dig into this passage, we need to understand something. In the first couple of words of Paul's passage here, he, we're going to be talking about a new identity. And we have to start at a new identity in order to understand the relationship between Christ and his church. So we have to remember, if you've had this new identity for many years, or if you don't have a new identity and you're considering trusting Jesus for the first time, it's so important that we know where to start. We received a new identity when we uh, surrendered our old self to Christ. If you declare with your mouth, 
that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul says that in Romans 10, uh, verse 9. That's the point where you start. And as you start into this new identity, there's some struggles with it, right? It's not easy. You have this old man and this new man, and they seem to fight with each other. The old self has these habits and these ways and these desires, and even though you're a new creature in Christ, you still have these old tendencies that keep coming back and keep coming back. But Paul goes on. He starts saying, you're God's chosen people. You're his bride. He, he promised to, to, to unite you to him. And one day he's going to come back and we're going to be united with him physically in relationship with him. So the question is always, and throughout this series, we're always going to ask this question, how do we wait? How do we wait for the groom? We're the bride, the church. How do we wait? What things should we be doing while we wait for him to come back to us? Paul gives us an idea here. He says, you're God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. So, clothe yourselves like your chosen people. And these are the hallmarks of this new identity. And it is so important that we focus, we meditate, we concentrate, we memorize, whatever it takes, these new hallmarks of this new identity. I don't care if you have been in your new identity for 60 years or if you've been in it for six minutes. It's so important. The hallmarks, according to Paul, are compassion, kindness, humility, Wow, sometimes the church gets that wrong. Humility, gentleness, and patience. So we, the bride, are waiting. We're at the church. <laughs> We're waiting for the groom to come. How do we wait? We wait with these hallmarks. And Paul says, these are the things that you should have to be the bride that Christ saved. But here's how it plays out. And this is what I love about this passage. He gives us the hallmarks. He gives us that we're new that we're the bride. He gives us the hallmarks, and then he says, this is how it plays out in life. Here's how it plays out. Bear with each other. Verse 13, bear with each other. That is an interesting word, bear, and it's a different word in different translations, but it's a long-term commitment kind of word. It's not a bear with each other. When somebody makes you mad, you let it go, and it's not a big deal. It's, it's the kind of word that means when somebody makes you mad every day for the rest of your life, you bear with each other. And already we're going, whoa, this is getting tough. This is getting hard. The term has a long-lasting implication. And he says, bear with, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. And grievance, by definition, means injustice. If you've been mistreated. Not if there's debate if you've been mistreated. If you've been mistreated, you are to bear and to forgive. You're not to bear and forgive only if the person is sorry. Only if the person comes back to you and goes, man, I shouldn't have said that thing about you, but I did it, I'm so sorry. Then we bear and forgive. That's not what Paul says. We clothe ourselves in these characteristics of what the bride is supposed to be like. And then when we are wronged, we get an opportunity to be the bride and to forgive and to bear with one another. Forgiveness is the only way forward. 
It's the only way. We, we're not to be selective on who we forgive and who we don't forgive. We're just to forgive, to bear with one another and to forgive. And then just to drive the, the nail home, Paul says, just like the Lord forgave you. And I think sometimes we go, well, you know, God forgave me, and I've been, I've been, I've been a, you know, a betrothed, I've been a Christian for, for 60 years now, and I know that God forgave me back then, and I've lived a pretty good life, and I go to church every week, and, and, and I'm, I'm kind to people, and everything is okay. So, so Christ forgave me, and so now I, I can forgive people once or twice. But the reality is, is that God forgives us every day. The reality is God forgives us every minute of every day. And there's a reason, even though we don't think that way sometimes, we think we live pretty good lives and we're doing the Christian thing pretty well, we've got it all seemingly under control, but God forgives us every day. So the words, forgive as the Lord forgave you, is a constant thing. The reason I say that we need to be forgiven and are forgiven every day is because there's two ways to look at sin. One way is to look at sin like a bad choice. You make a wrong choice, you hurt someone, you do something, you, you act out of this old identity. And that's a sin, right? A sin. But there's this other thing that we find in Scripture that sin is not just our choices. It's like it's deep in our bones. And no matter how hard we try, we can't suck it out. That sin is the inherited sin we have since Adam and Eve decided to choose themselves over God. So we have this sin in us, every one of us. It doesn't matter if you're an 80-year-old sweet grandma who doesn't ever seem to do anything wrong or a young 16-year-old kid who just can't help himself but do only wrong things. We all have it inside us. And I think this is important to realize when we talk about forgiveness. Because how we view sin is so important. If we view sin as in all the stuff that happens to me that I don't like, we're going to have a problem forgiving people, right? Understanding what's wrong is so key. And, And it's the same thing that gives forgiveness its strength. When someone wrongs you, there is a sin A choice, part of its choice, part of its DNA, what we've inherited, there's sin there. So so if you think about the people in your life right now, and we all have them, that you need to forgive, the reason you need to forgive them is not because of them. The reason you need to forgive them is because sin is inside of them. And if they didn't have the sin inside of them, there would be nothing to forgive. This is why Paul says, our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's not with each other. We're not supposed to fight each other. We're supposed to fight the one who put it there, and that's the enemy. So that's why Paul is saying that. So to understand that the reason that you've been wronged is inside of you too, meaning we all have sin, gives us an understanding of, listen, I get it. I know why you mouth off to me. I know why you made that choice. I know why you just can't seem to get past this habitual sin that you're struggling with. And it's the same reason that I can't stand it when somebody pulls, uh, cuts me off in traffic or when my wife says this or when my kids do that. It's the same thing. And if we can look at what, wh- why people have wronged us, 
with the same understanding that I have that same wrongness inside of me, it makes it a lot more, it doesn't make it easier, it just makes it easier to understand, right? It doesn't make it easier emotionally to forgive, it just makes it, no, I get it. I get, I get why you did that. I get why people hurt me. When someone wrongs you, the sin is cancer. The only cure to that cancer, the only cure is Christ. It's not me being a really nice person back to them. It's not even me bearing with them like Paul instructed us to do in Colossians. The only cure for the sin inside us is Christ and his sacrifice for us. And the reason why Paul says forgive is very specific. It's to reflect the cure. It's to reflect the cure that is Christ. That's why we are to forgive. If you're wondering like, okay, Josh, I get it. We're supposed to forgive. That's part of what Scripture tells us to, but why? It's a lot easier for me just not to care, for me to kind of put up walls, and that person does this to me. I push them away so they can't do it again, right? We're protecting ourselves. I've lived that way, and I got to tell you, it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier than forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. So why? Why are, we to, why are we to forgive? We know it's a reflection of the cure. Great, but what if I don't feel like reflecting the cure? The ultimate reason is unity. Christ, more than anything, wants to unite with us. He's the groom, we're the bride, he's coming back, and he wants to be with us. That's why we forgive. Christ forgave us so that we will be unified. And it's the same reason, you've read these passages, it was in Genesis 2, why there's this weird phrase that says, man leaves his father and mother and is to be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh. And if you're like me, you read that and you think, oh, well, he's talking about sex. Okay, I get it, right. Everybody wants that, so that's why we move that way. But that's like this much of the reason, okay? Believe it or not, it's this much of the reason. The real reason is spiritual unity. And what God is saying when he says, this is why man leaves his father and mother and joins with his wife. It's because it's, that's the desire in us, to be unified, to be together. It doesn't mean separate from mom and dad and go unify. It means just unifying with, with, the, next, with, the, with the bride. Forgiveness must happen for unity to take hold. Listen to what Peter asked Jesus in Matthew 18, 21 through 22. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? The reason he said that is that's the reflection of the law. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And you could even translate that phrase, not 77 times, it's 70 times seven times. So this idea that, that Peter is saying, seven times? Is that it? Is that, is that when I can drop the hammer on him for, for, for wronging me? Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's, it's a number so much bigger than seven that you should probably just think about it as in bearing with one another. Constantly forgive one another. 
Can you imagine how Peter felt? Like he thought he was going to get, no, well, seven is true in the Old Testament, but, but I want you to forgive eight times. Forgive eight times. Oh, okay, eight times. Got it, got it, got it. And Jesus says, no, constantly. It doesn't matter how many times you've been wronged by even one individual. Forgive, 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 forgive. So much so that this is just part of who you are. It's not a tally. You don't have to record it. It's just a constant. Jesus' point is that there's no limit to how many times you were to forgive someone. Just like there's no limit to how many times Christ, the groom, will forgive the bride. There's no limit. And I test that almost every day. There's no limit to his forgiveness. That's beautiful. That is the reflection of a man and a woman in marriage. There's no limit to forgiveness. You do anything you want, and I'm going to forgive you. This is our main point today. If you're, if you're going to remember something, remember this phrase. Forgiveness is an illustration of how Christ treats his bride, the church. Not treated, not past tense treated, as in I forgave you and now you better shape up because I only forgave you once. But it's bearing concept, this idea that it's, that it's continually going. And if you mouth off to your kid tonight, Christ is there to forgive you. If you yell at that driver who cuts you off in traffic, I'm sorry, I'm thinking a lot about traffic. I had to drive to JFK and back in one day. There was a lot of traffic going on. God forgave me a lot. Thank you, Jesus. It's a constant thing. It doesn't stop. And the reason that Christ does that for us is because we are his bride. And this is his nature. Forgiveness is an illustration of how Christ treats his bride, the church. Christ's desire is unity with the bride. Above all else. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, Jesus said that. He said that. In, in John 17, 20, I'll read it to you. You can see it on the screen behind me. My prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. We believed the, the apostles' message, and now he, Jesus is praying for us. Okay, so he says, I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us. Here's the reason. So that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that, you, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. So that there may be brought to, so they may be brought to complete unity. Then, the world will know that you sent me and that, and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. There's a lot of back and forth going on there. I and you and you, me and us and them and cuckoo-cachoo, right? But here's the point. There's a reason why God calls us to him. This unity reflects two things, if you heard it, two things that Jesus is sent from God. Our groom, who is coming back from us, is God sent. And that God loves the world and us 
like he loves Christ. Let's just let that sink in for a second. You know how much God loves Christ? Think about it. And that's what makes this whole gift so special is because it's his only, it's his beloved son that he loved and that's why it's such a big deal that God sacrificed his son for our sake. Jesus is saying, I want you to love them as much as you love me and I want them to know that. In fact, I want the world to know that. God loves me as much as he loves Christ. Wow. Huge. And maybe you know this, maybe I don't need to say it, but I'll say it anyway. This was the plan from the very beginning. In fact, this was the plan even before the beginning. Before there was a beginning, this was the plan. That the groom and the bride would unite and that the world would know that Christ is from God and that God loves us. Why is this so important to know? Why is it important to know forgiveness is an illustration of how Christ treats the bride? If you don't know this, if this is the first time you've heard it, or you leave here and you forget it, if you don't see forgiveness as the first step to unity between Christ and his church and subsequently between a husband and a wife, here's what's going to happen. And I don't even want to say this because it's so painful. You're going to long for unity. And you're not going to find it. And that's depressing and dark. And when we don't find unity, the enemy wins. You're going to long for it and you're not going to get it. You're going to want unity from your husband or your wife or your betrothed. And you're not going to get it. You're going to want unity from your friends and your family, and you're going to be frustrated. You're going to want unity from your church, from Grace Chapel, and you're going to be frustrated when you don't get it. You won't get it unless you start with forgiveness. And I don't want to see you frustrated because frustrated people get more and more and more frustrated, especially if they can't get the thing that they want, that they're longing for. And you know what a frustrated person does in a marriage that doesn't get released, that doesn't accept and forgive? We all know it's not pretty. And sometimes the marriages end, and sometimes, I don't know what's worse, they end or they keep going in this horrific frustration of, I, I, I'm not getting what I need, and I don't know Why? I just, and this is the way we say it in our culture, I just fell out of love. That must be what it is. I picked the wrong person. <laughs> I fell out of love. But what really is going on is I wanted unity and I couldn't get it. That's what happens if you don't understand that the first step towards unity is forgiveness. And that's why Christ's first step towards asking us was death on a cross was forgiveness. He forgave you before you even said, I do. Before you even said, okay. He forgave you. That's why it's so important to understand. I want you to find unity. I want you to find unity in your marriage. I want you to find unity with your friends. I want you to find unity with your coworkers. 
with your family. And even more than all of that, I want you to find unity in a church, in this church. Because when we're unified together, we can bear with each other. We can embrace the differences that we all have. You can be frustrated with me, and you can bear with me. And it's going to be okay, because we're unified. We're making progress towards this forgiveness. You'll never get there. You'll never get there if you don't start with forgiveness. So what do we need to do? How do we apply this? When we leave here, what do we do? This is always the challenge of a pastor, of a preacher, is to give you something concrete to go out with. This is a big one. (laughs) We are the betrothed waiting for the return of the groom, Christ. The question is, how do we wait? What do we do while we're waiting? We're at the church. We're literally at the church. Everybody's here. We're waiting for the groom to walk in. How do we act? If we see unity as the goal in our marriages, in our relationships, in our community, and in our church, forgiveness has to be the first step. We can never be too united. Do you know that? We can never be united enough. It's always something we want to do more of. Until Christ comes back, we will not have perfect unity. So we need to continually strive towards it. You might be sitting here going, hey, listen, I'm pretty close to the people at my church. I got a pretty good marriage. I got a pretty good family. Everything's okay. I don't need any more of this. I don't need to like make myself more uncomfortable to get more of this thing that I already have. But it's not true. You can never get enough. You can always have more. If unity is the goal of marriage between Christ and the church and the goal between a husband and a wife, how do we forgive? You knew I was going to go there. How do we forgive? And here's the secret. I don't know if it's a secret, but I'll say it. You can't. You can't forgive. And everybody's going, well, the buildup is that we just can't? How does that work? This is, the hor- this is the worst application you've ever preached on. You can't. This is the tricky part. This is the lie that we've been told. You can't forgive. We can talk ourselves into all sorts of illusions. I'm a forgiving person. Oh, I forgive all the time. People say things to me that are so mean, and I just forgive them. You know? The church does something that I really disagree with, and I just forgive it. My wife says all kinds of stuff to me, and I just forgive her. Not, not why specifically. And then my son says something to me and I lose my mind, right? We've just been lying to ourselves that we've been forgiving this whole time when we've just been stuffing it. We've taken the easy way and I'm just pushing people away. I'm just going to make it so you can't do that to me ever again. I'm not going to care. And if I don't care, I'm just going to call not caring forgiveness and it'll work out. But it doesn't work out. It builds and it builds and it builds. And before you know it, you're in a 15-year marriage and all of a sudden your spouse is talking about divorce and you're going, how did we get here? It's because you haven't been forgiving. And I'm here to tell you, you can't. You can't forgive. We convince ourselves that we can forgive and we give it out like it's candy. But then there's that one person that we just can't seem to forgive. And it has to do with our new identity. Remember the new identity we had talked about in the beginning? 
we became Christ's betrothed. He asked, he said, will you marry me? And we said, yes, yes. And he said, okay, I'm coming back. We are the betrothed. And when that happened, Paul talks about it very clearly. We became a new creature. And Christ gave us a new way to live. Our new identity isn't just a get-out-of-jail-free card, although we will go to heaven one day because of it. Our new identity is a covering of Christ. One theologian called it a robe of righteousness, and the righteousness that that we wrap ourselves in is not our righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness, and that's his sacrifice for us. Christ says, I'm gonna die for you and give you my righteousness. And he puts it on us like a robe. And on our worst day, we are Christ incarnate. And that's the way it works. Because we can't do this on our, on our own. We do not have the power, the ability, the strength, the gift set, the, the patience, the forbearance to forgive on our own. And if we think we can, we're already on the wrong track. Our new identity is Christ. And this is how we are righteous in God's eyes. It's not all the great choices that you've been making. Good job. Not enough, right? It's Christ's atoning sacrifice. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. That's the old guy. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live in the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see where I'm headed? This is how we take a step towards unity, by forgiveness. It isn't us who forgives. It's Christ who forgives through us. And you might be going, oh, come on, Josh, that's semantics. You're splitting hairs. No, I'm not. Because if you think it's you, you're going to head off down this path and you're going you're to translate the word forgiveness to mean protected or calloused or hardened. And this is what happens in our churches. We all think we're forgiving each other, but we're just pushing people away. See, Christ, when he forgives us, it's not that he's less emotionally available for us. No, every time we sin, we hurt him and he forgives us and he forgives us and he forgives us. This is what the book of Hosea is all about. Christ wanted Hosea to marry a prostitute so the nation of Israel, and so Hosea would know what it feels like every time she left him. And and God's saying, that's what it feels like. It hurts me, but it's never going to not hurt any less. It's not going to hurt less because I'm getting more calloused. No, I'm available for you. This is how we take a step towards unity with forgiveness. It's Christ who forgives through us. So this is my application. It's pretty simple. Not three steps. They don't rhyme. They don't start with the same three letters. None of that. That's next week. The key to true forgiveness is surrendering to Christ. When your brother or sister or husband or wife or grandchildren or children or whatever, whenever they say that thing that just cuts you so deep, it like shocks you, it's so, it hurts so bad, your response is, let me surrender to Christ because he's the only one that can forgive you for that. And I'm out of the picture. I'm just a conduit of the forgiveness. I'm surrendering to Christ and I also know why you did it. I surrender, I surrender, I surrender. 
The key to true forgiveness is surrendering to Christ. And if you don't, you can convince yourself that you and of yourself have the power to forgive. And you'll tell yourself you're a forgiving person. When in reality, you're just a person that's really good at not caring. A person that is uncaring, is calloused and hardened. And you're going to have a harder and harder and harder time being united to the bride, to the groom the way he wants you to. The key to true forgiveness is surrender. Surrender yourself to Christ daily, hourly, every minute if that's what it takes. Allow his forgiveness to flow through you to your wife, to your kids, to your family, and whoever else is around you. Let's pray. Lord God, the forgiveness that you offer us in our old self, we can't understand. It's too much. It's too beautiful. It's too good. But God, you've made us a new creature. You've made us a new believer, a new person. And in that newness, Lord, we have been crucified with you. God, we ask that you would live through us. That we could look at the offenses, and there are many. People hurt us all the time. People hurt us so badly that our memories of those hurts hurt. There is a lot of pain in this room, Lord. I ask that you would fall on us and that you would allow your forgiveness to work through our hearts. That we wouldn't do this out of our own ability. That we wouldn't walk away after forgiving someone and them thinking, wow, that person has it together. No, we don't. It's your forgiveness that we desire. So Lord, we ask that you would allow us to surrender to you. That you would welcome us with open arms, even if we've known you for 60 years. As we surrender to you, Lord, forgive through us and unify us. Please, Jesus, unify us with our spouses, with our families, with our children. And Lord, most of all, unify us in this church. We need you for that. And there's too many reasons to hold a grudge without you. Lord Jesus, as we surrender ourselves, bless us for this and bless this church. We love you, God. In your name, amen.